Creative Collisions with Second Home. In the late 1990s, during the dot-com boom, one woman stood out in the very, very masculine world of technology. Her resilience and faith in her vision went on to have a big impact on how the internet is used today. Welcome to Creative Collisions, the podcast where we celebrate creative diversity, bringing you conversations with great talents from different industries direct from second home. My name is Rohan Silver, and today I'm going to be talking to one of my heroes, Martha Lane Fox. She joined me at Second Home in Lisbon for a big public event to talk about her amazing career. From being a tech entrepreneur to becoming a leading advocate for digital literacy, Martha's carved out her place in the online industry. As co-founder of lastminute.com and the brains behind the groundbreaking government website, gov.uk, Martha's influence spans many fields. But for me, it's her determination and her vision that makes her really inspiring. With hindsight, it's easy to think that the internet would inevitably become such an integral part of our lives. But our online world was forged by a handful of pioneers who bravely persisted with this vision of global connectivity. Well, to me, this time, I don't really remember much about the internet at all. I was much more into, you know, reading the football results and news on teletext and CFAX. For me, the internet was a thing of weird chat rooms, and that was kind of it. You know, it wasn't this central part of our lives that it obviously and very quickly became. There were lots of big predictions about how the internet would change everything, but to be honest, every once in a while people do make these grandiose claims about how some technology is going to change everything, and, you know, you're probably wise to tune it out. I think the really clever people, like Martha, saw the potential in it and went full throttle. The thing about Martha is that she's become really influential, particularly in the UK when it comes to technology. And she's used that influence not to try and make more money, but actually to change the way the tech industry operates. She's trying to make it more socially responsible. She's trying to promote gender equality within the industry. And she's really, really trying to get government to engage better and more intelligently with the digital world around us. This all began with a very simple business idea, a travel website called lastminute.com. Lastminute.com, like all great businesses, was born out of a deep user need. And I can say that with real certainty because it wasn't necessarily my deep user need that it came out of. It was Brent, my co-founder. It was his brilliant idea. I came to help him start it. But he would spend pretty much two or three hours on a Friday afternoon in the company that we worked in together, which was a consulting company, not working. I was doing his work. He was calling <laughs> hotels, restaurants, airlines, trying to work out how to take his various girlfriends away for the weekend. And it was pre-internet, sort of. And he would just sit at his desk going, it must be easier to find, you know, how to get a cheap flight, where to get a restaurant table. I could take, you know, another pretty lady this weekend. So... That's the honest truth of where it came from. So you were helping Brent get laid. That's the kind of... <laughs> <laughs> okay. oh, it's a noble cause. He's married now. He's married Very now. happily. But I'd just like to <laughs> quickly establish... Um, okay, so how quickly did it 
sort of snowball? Did you know straight away you were onto something or...? I wish I'd written more down because mm. it was 20 years ago nearly now mm. um, that we started and there was so much happening because not only was lastminute.com trying to build itself, but we were really trying to convince people that the internet was going to be a force that was going to continue growing in people's lives. It's kind of extraordinary to think that in 97, 98, people thought we were nuts for suggesting that your credit card mm. was going to be in the computer buying stuff. Yeah, And right. that was the way my mum put it. The business grew, but it was also a huge kind of PR work about what technology was going to do. Right. We have to remember that this was a time when the internet was still in its infancy, nothing like what it is today. Speaking as someone who's also co-founded a company, I was curious to know how Martha managed to not only create a unique business in a field that wasn't yet fully established, but also how they convinced others to join them in this giant leap of faith. It was a massive challenge, and I just don't think any entrepreneur today, in truth, face that kind of obstacle, because if you start a tech company now, people know you can make lots of money doing that. No one knew that back then. It was an amazing thing they did. The first employee was my brother, right. and the second employee was a friend of a, a brilliant young man, actually not a friend, who Brent had worked with before, who just thought he was going to take a punt. Right. So we were kind of scrabbling to try and get people from all sides because it was still a very odd thing to do, and there was not really any tech talent in London at that time and all those things. As everyone here knows who's entrepreneurial, you have to advance on all fronts. It is relentless. We were raising money in an environment where there really wasn't any money. We sent our business plan to four venture capitalists, I think it was. Three of them said no. One of them saw us. They had one question in this VC that saw right. us. And the one question was, what happens if I get pregnant? So then we had to go back to the drawing board and start again. So we're trying to find money, trying to find people to actually do something. And then, crucially, trying to build the actual product. So convince hotels, airlines theatre ticket suppliers, that they should give two Muppets who knew nothing about their industries a massive break and actually give them some product. And that was where I spent a huge amount of my time. In just seven years, lastminute.com attracted over 7 million customers and was ultimately sold, wait for it, for over half a billion pounds. As lastminute.com became a household name, Martha, at just 25, stepped out into the limelight becoming the face of the business. You know, I did consciously say yes to every single media opportunity because we had no money and I just thought, this is free marketing. If we can talk about it and people will write about it, it's free marketing. And mm. this was a world in some ways that was simpler than it is now because there was no dominance of platform-based businesses. So, you know, print media made a massive difference to whether people came. You know, the world was in some ways much less complex in terms of attention. And I just said yes to everything. And now I look back on it, I just think, what were you thinking? You know, that was an insane strategy because <laughs> it was not about me. It should never have been about me. It was, always, And I hope it, I didn't talk about me, but I was, you know, me and lastminute.com were one and the same thing. And then it became sort of really distracting for both the business and personally when it became such, you know, an emotionally complex thing to be so bound up in the brand of your business. Is that complex because other employees get annoyed? I no, mean, what's... it was, I mean, maybe other employees got annoyed. I, <laughs> they were nice and pretended they weren't. It must have been hard for Brent. He was the co-founder. He had the original idea. You know, he would be cut out of the pictures of the <laughs> pair of us. 
You know, go figure, he was a man and I was a woman and there weren't not very many women doing this stuff. It doesn't reflect very well on anybody that that happened, frankly. So there was that going on, not that it ever became an issue between us because he's an extremely nice person. The reason I say that particularly on a personal level is when we'd taken the company public, which we did at the absolute height of yeah. the stock market before the market crashed in 2000. We did it one week before everything collapsed. Genius. It was literally the most last-minute.com thing we ever did. It was insane. <laughs> But then after that, and I often think about this because in the world there is now, imagine the shit that I would have had because I got 3,000 handwritten letters directly to me saying everything from I was a bitch to worse because I had taken people's money, the company had crashed, wow. I was responsible for not just lastminute.com but the entire stock market and everybody's savings <laughs> and the world collapsing. And that was quite hard to take, age 28. And I yeah. think about it now and I think... God, imagine if it was now when I'd had... I mean, it would be unimaginable what people face, I think, if you have that amount of kind of exposure. How did you, how did you cope with that? I very rarely sleep, and I don't often get into bed for no reason apart from the obvious. And, <laughs> yes, that one. And um, I just got into bed and I fell asleep for about two days. It was really weird. It was like a kind of physical reaction to this insane abuse. And I had to then just sort of think, okay, it's not actually about me, and go back to work. And again, anyone here who's starting a business knows that often you can have this world's noise outside, which is unrelated to the challenge of what we were doing, which was not screwing up people's flight tickets. So that's quite a grounding thing to get back to. So I first met Martha and started working with Martha in about 2010. I was working in Downing Street as a policy advisor, and Martha just used to bowl in with incredible energy and enthusiasm, but also this incredible sense of social justice. This agenda that she brought to the table of digital skills, of fairness to do with changing how government used technology, you know, really became very, very central to what government was doing. Why use technology to make government better? Well, if you have better public services, that helps everyone, particularly the least well-off. And if government becomes more efficient, then that means that taxpayers' money and the government's money can be better spent on other things rather than being wasted in bureaucracy. And that's why, even back then, I was so keen to invite her into government and pick her brains. Actually, the first time we met, Ro, you were not in government yet, and you invited me in to talk about what the opposition's policy about something to do with digital was. And I was really struck because you invited me into David Cameron's office. He wasn't prime minister. And I left the meeting thinking, I think Rohan thinks he's going to be prime minister because you were the one sitting behind the desk where the prime minister would normally sit. You were the one in the office where the prime minister would normally be, so that was a funny thing. But the reason that we met then was because I'd actually been asked by the actual Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, if I'd look at how we can encourage more people to use technology. And it became a bit of a kind of evangelical mission for me because, you know, I'd lived in this sort of tech bubble. I hadn't really thought about it. But actually, when you look at not just in the UK, but globally, the amount of people that still don't have access to technology, who don't get all the benefits from it, you know, it's pretty simple. It's poor people and old people, yeah. and often the two. Yeah. And ironically, they are often the people that have the most to gain from using technology in a smart way. And I believe it's a kind of question of social justice that we don't let this digital divide grow and grow. So Gordon Brown asked me if I'd do some work in the UK, and then David Cameron kept me on when he became Prime Minister. And as part of that, it seemed to me that people who are the heaviest users of government services are also people that are using these appalling often phone and paper-based services. Mm. And I thought, 
the internet could not only do government better, but could help people have a much better experience of government. And often, people for whom they are really struggling because you know you're having to be on the phone for five hours while someone tries yeah, to tell you terrible. about benefits is horrible. So that's how I got involved with it, and I feel like I was immensely lucky because, as you know, it was a rapidly growing mm. bit of government. Yeah. We set up a whole new department, and the work that not me, but the team that we put in place achieved was astonishing. Gov.uk has been emulated all over the world. Yeah. So I actually feel like that's more of an achievement in my head than often lastminute.com. A lot of the stuff you were recommending was really tough, as I remember it. You, you were advocating turning off yeah. old paper forms and phone lines to force people to use the internet, which is not easy for politicians to sign up to. I mean, is that still something you believe in? And I mean, I, I think what I felt was never digital only, because some people, you know, for obvious reasons need help, and you've yeah. got to be there to give it to them. It was just a massive sales mission, so I had to go and see every single minister that yeah. had an even small interest in it or no interest, all of the heads of the departments and all of their subsidiary people. And I remember going around thinking, wow, this is like starting a business in government because you just have to be on a sales mission all the time. That just was how we decided to do it, was to say, this has got to be real focus on digital. We've got to stop all the paper stuff. We've got to stop so much phone activity. Never leaving people behind because that's the work I've been doing, but taking quite a kind of militant view about it. Gov.uk. In the UK, we use it all the time. Whether it's to do our taxes or to get a passport, it's become the way for the British public to interact with government. And it was Martha's faith in the potential of the internet and how it could serve us better that was key in pushing this innovation forward. Some people see government websites as just a way of saving money. But, you know, I think these websites genuinely do transform the experience for citizens, particularly the most disadvantaged. This idea of leaving people behind can rightly be a source of anxiety when it comes to digital progress. It's easy to assume that most people in society are tech-savvy, but, as Martha rightly says, there's a real disparity of knowledge and access when it comes to the internet. And it became her mission to bridge that gap, and she did so by founding the charity Dot Everyone. Fundamentally, Dot Everyone is fighting for a fairer internet, and by that I mean now having spent 20 years or so in the technology sector, I feel as though the everyone part of the technology is often missing, and mm. it's the dot-com part that gets the loudest airtime. And I think that it's really important that we keep championing the everyone in the future of how we build the internet. And so we're doing a bunch of stuff. We're doing three big projects at the minute. The first one is one of my <laughs> particular um, favourites, actually. I have this belief that if we can just by stealth dunk public sector leaders in a more of an understanding about technology, then mm. they will make better decisions and yeah. we will all benefit. So we've done a programme of mentoring with MPs where we match them with a kind of younger digital person and they are helping them navigate the digital world. And that is sometimes as much just to show how they could communicate with their constituents as it is to look at legislation. So we're going to roll that out in the mayor's office and we're going to roll that out in some of the NHS and I think, you know, if you're running a school or if you're running a hospital or if you're running any bit of the public sector or public-private sector, it's scary and difficult to know where to turn to yeah. be able to get that information. So that's what everyone is partly doing. Where did that insight come from? Because I think, you know, before I met you, I sort of lazily and stupidly assumed everyone will get the sort of dot-com stuff. You can just sort of pick it up. And how did you come to realise that 
that isn't happening. I think partly because of working so much with people who never use the internet and seeing it through that sharp lens. But also, you know, I'm a member of the House of Lords in the UK. It's the unelected chamber that scrutinises legislation. There's much wrong with it, but there's some things that work. But one of the things that's wrong with it is that even though there are loads of experts, you know, really impressive doctors, lawyers, people that have run massive bits of government, huge companies you know, there is still a kind of absence of understanding about the modern world, partly because people have often left their careers. Yeah. And then I started thinking, well, if it's like this here, then I wonder what it's like at the other end of Parliament, so the elected officials, and I wonder what it's like more broadly. If you're busy doing your day job, you don't necessarily have the ability to learn about technology. Mm. And so I think it wasn't that big an insight. Another piece of work that everyone is doing is looking at what digital understanding means. You know, you can think about digital skills. It's like, can you code? Can you turn on your computer? Can you send an email? They're kind of in a box and you can tick them off. But digital understanding to me is something much more complicated and actually probably more important because this is about how you navigate the current world. Do you know where your data is? Do you know what those transactions are you're making every day? So that's kind of a huge area of interest for us, which... Leads me to the final thing we're doing, which I just want to mention, because this is actually the thing I find most exciting, which is we're looking at what's the fair trade for digital. There's a, a kind of mark that you can put on food products, which shows that this is a banana or a strawberry or a piece of meat that's been sourced from a sustainable place. And I feel like there's a real opportunity to kind of set a moral and ethical compass in the technology sector by thinking about what are the kind of things as a user that I want to be sure about. You know, I want to know that they're not screwing over their workers. Mm. I want to know what they're doing with my data. I want to know what their gender balance is like. A bunch of other things. So we're, we're starting to look at what that is. There's a lot of sort of worries right now about technology. What do you think governments ought to be doing to mitigate some of those some of those challenges there's such a disjointed relationship between the political class policymakers and elected officials and the technology class Mm. i mean there are points where they come together and i think you know politicians are aware of this gap but it's not necessarily being bridged and i think that we need to do that very rapidly to make good decisions i am still wildly optimistic about the opportunities for technology to improve things but i think You have to take the actions. They don't just happen. I feel optimistic, but I feel optimistic because I think I can see steps that need to happen, but we just need to start taking them. I think that messages that come from the top, whether it's of an organization or whether it's, you know, a charity, a company or a local community group, whatever it might be, they are absolutely vital. So I think it is essential that leaders of countries put how we respond to the technological challenges facing us at the absolute heart of their agenda. I mean, that is the single biggest thing. I don't believe our current prime minister is doing that. I think, you know, arguably, again, you know, please, I don't want to talk about Brexit. It's so painful. But if I was prime minister, apart from trying to stop it, I would definitely press the reset button and think, okay, how do we make Britain... 3.0, because this is the moment to try and do that. We want to have the best infrastructure in the world. We want to have the most resilient workforce, those kinds of things. So I think really embedding that thinking at the heart and the top of government is where you need to start. You're also on the on the board of Twitter. I am. And see, I guess you you know you can see from the inside, you know these these sort of debates. You know, I love Twitter. I really do. I'm a super user. I find it fascinating. I'm lucky I have not suffered from the very, very extensive abuse that many high-profile women suffer from in the platforms. But I think it has a capacity to do some really interesting things, mm. and it is such an extraordinary, you know, life source. I was so incredibly lucky when I got offered the role of being on the board. But I think the thing that I 
feel about Twitter specifically, and I personally think we have to be very, very careful and specific and deliberate when we talk about these US tech companies, because Twitter is incredibly different to Google, which is incredibly different to Facebook, which is incredibly different to Apple. These are all their own ecosystems. And I think it's hard to understand it unless you're in it. You know, many of you have probably been to San Francisco. It is on the edge of the world, right? It faces out into open sea. And you get that feeling that it's sort of this weird community that is having this extraordinary reach around the world, while actually being in this kind of weird slightly dislocated from the rest of the world place. So that's the first thing. It's just environmentally very strange that it's got that kind of tension to it, I think. And secondly, I mean it when I say that about the networks, they are so concentrated and so powerful. You know, you only have to look at the investors in all the major, huge businesses. They are all basically the same. It's a tiny, tiny group of people. And so that is just quite nuts when you think about the reach and the power that they have. And in my experience of Twitter, there's a kind of interesting cultural thing because it is open, started from an open position, an open kind of culture. And that just makes it, to my mind, it's trying to do the right thing in a more interesting way than perhaps some of the other companies that say they're trying to do the right right. thing. And I think they are wrestling with just having grown so fast. Nowadays, we tend to expect more from tech companies. We want them to be efficient, transparent, but also kind. Gender inequality and discrimination are big debates in Silicon Valley, the UK, and the world over. Considering Martha's success, I wondered how she felt about the underrepresentation of women in the tech industry. You know, I am an optimistic person, and I hope you can tell I'm quite a you know, generally balanced person, but this makes me so angry and upset. It really does, because having worked my whole life, and I look back, you know, I shared with you how I went to bed for two days after being so assaulted by those letters, and I just think... That was a small inkling of how it is to be a high-profile woman in an industry. But Mm. the tech sector had the opportunity to do stuff differently. It did not exist 30 years ago. It did not exist. I mean, I was just talking about this earlier with someone, and I was saying it is astonishingly awful how Harvey Weinstein has behaved. But, Mm. you know, the film industry has been around for hundreds of years, and women have always been objectified at the heart of it. That is kind of known. It's being fleshed out. It's unacceptable, but it's different to the tech sector, which didn't exist. We could have started again. And from every angle, it's just a bit depressing. The products are less good because women aren't co-designing them. Mm. There aren't so many female-led businesses, which means the power is just distributed in the wrong way. There aren't any women coding, which means, again, the power isn't going where the money and all the influencing companies is. As everyone here knows, if you're building the stuff, you have the most power. So it really, really, really matters. And there's no one thing we can do about it, but Everybody needs to be aware of all the levers that they have. Recruitment, retention, flexible working, helping women get back to work after families, all of the things that are now being known about the different ways women respond to appraisals to men or how they go for jobs. All of that stuff is really important, as well as more successful VCs will hire more women. It's as simple as that. You will make better investment decisions. It's fact. So that is incontrovertible. So I urge you to find you know, women that you think can even learn the skill. It's not like it's some magic art, because the thing I often hear is there are no women VCs. Well, fucking find some and train them. It's not that difficult. It's only looking at numbers and having an instinct for product, and you will have a broader range. And I mean that really sincerely, because there are not enough, and I believe that will help. Coming away from my conversation with Martha, it was clear to me that to have a world-changing vision, you'll often experience resistance. In Martha's case, the challenge was mainly in convincing people she was onto something. And when it comes to creativity, faith and persistence can be a strong foundation for any idea. I think what's most amazing about Martha is that 
with every setback, it actually feels like her sense of moral purpose gets stronger, not weaker. And that's a really rare thing, I think. She really uses entrepreneurship in government, in business, to have her sense of morality come to life. I hadn't appreciated just how much stick, how much abuse Martha got personally. To go from being a kind of media darling to a hate figure was just incredibly tough. And then also having built lastminute.com with her co-founder, having you know made loads of money, she then took a holiday, the first sort of break she'd had in years and years, and immediately got into a car crash that almost killed her. It's amazing that she got through that and is still such a kind of positive person about humanity. I think it would have been really easy to end up thinking, well, screw all of you, I'm not, I'm not doing that again. Those peaks and troughs, which you know, any entrepreneur faces, it just feels like Martha had those sort of times 10 and coming out of it on the other side with this renewed sense of purpose and mission is amazing. Martha, in everything she does, I think, proves that you can absolutely build a business with morals and you can absolutely make a big difference that way. And I think that's a really, really nice thing to be reminded of. Martha once wrote, Tech is a marvel. Now let's make it moral. It's becoming painfully obvious that this ethical perspective is the future for most businesses. And considering the challenges we face, we can't afford for it not to be. So... Just maybe, in our own creativity, the future of innovation might be in solving other people's problems rather than our own. This podcast was brought to you by Radio Wolfgang and Second Home. It featured entrepreneur Martha Lane Fox, and your host was me, Rohan Silver. This series is produced by Eli Block and Natalia Rodriguez, and the executive producer is Harry Watson. If you'd like to find out more, visit our website, secondhome.io.